Good morning, Crossroads. How are we doing? Good morning. What a great truth in that song. He has so loved the world that he has rescued us, brought us life. I want to take a moment here before we dive into the message. And as you probably have heard about the tragedies in both El Paso and then this morning waking up to the news of what happened in Dayton, I want to take a moment uh, ju- just to, to spend some time in prayer over those issues and over those circumstances. You know, I don't know about you, I hear about these things and I think, man, there is so much hate in the world. Uh, there is so much uh, destruction and emptiness and, and uh, loneliness and uh, situations and strife and uh, people react and reactions and these mass murders. And it creates a lot of questions for us, doesn't it? Questions like why? Qu- questions like why would they do that? And then the deep hearted question, where is God in the midst of it? And I woke up to this psalm this morning, Psalm 9. And it says this, the psalmist was writing about these type of things, and he said this, he said, the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble, and those who know his name put their trust in him. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. And you know, while, while it seems the, the earth is growing even strangely, even more strangely dim, the light of the gospel becomes all the more powerful, doesn't it? Because the only hope in our country, the only hope is, you know, certainly politics is important and those type of things God's given us government, but the only hope in our world is Jesus Christ. That's the hope that we need to transform lives from the inside out, to take hate and make it love, to take hatred and, 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 and stress and strife and make it an action of purity, of motive, Uh, of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so I just want to take a moment to pray. And in these dark moments, I believe it's the greatest moment for the church to shine, to shine brightly the cause of Christ. So would you bow with me as we pray uh, for these folks and these families that have been affected? God, we confess to you that we come with questions. Lord, we read the news and we see what's happening in communities. Lord, even right here in our own community. And we wonder, God, where are you? How are you you at work? How are you going to get glory through this? And yet, consistently through the ages in the fallen state, we find ourselves in darkness. We find ourselves dead in sin. We find ourselves with no hope. And every time, God, we find the world in that state, we also see the adverse, and that is that you're brightly shining, that your glory is still being revealed. And so, God, I just want to pray for those in El Paso right now and those in Dayton and the families that have been affected. God, that you would just wrap your loving, comforting arms around them, that they may experience your goodness in the midst of loss, that they may know you and your lightness and righteousness in the midst of darkness, that, God, they would would be pressed into you as their refuge, as their strong tower, as they mourn. God, we pray for justice. We believe that you are a God of justice and we pray that you would show yourself to be a just God in the midst of these circumstances. That God, it would be a moment where where the darkness is revealed and God, it's not just the actions and reactions of people, but God, it would be in the heart, the sinfulness of our hearts that would be revealed so that we turn to you and find salvation in you. That you are a God who loves the world. And so God, we, we grab to you in this moment. We pray you will be with those communities God, may this be a moment the church rises, that, that, that people's lives will be transformed, that God, you can take what is evil and turn it to what is good. God, we pray that you would do that in a way that we can't imagine or think that you would do that all for your glory, all for the, your beautiful name, your righteous name, the name worthy of all praise. In your name, Jesus, amen, amen. If you would turn with me this morning to Romans chapter six, 
Romans chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there is one in the seat back in front of you. If you turn with us to page 942, Romans chapter 6. Or you can just open our app. Everything's right in there. If you have our Crossroads app, you can follow along in the notes as well, right from the app. So open that up, Romans chapter 6 together. As you turn there, I want to invite you to join me uh, if you are able and willing in March of 2020, uh, March uh, uh, 10th through 21st. We're going to be taking a trip to Israel. And uh, we believe this will be a moment, breathtaking moment, where our eyes will open to see what God has done in his redemptive plan through the people of God in the land that God promised them. And so we would love for you, for you to go with us. I invite every single person to go. We're excited about that opportunity. You can get some information at the Information Center as you leave. Uh, we believe it will be a life-changing trip as we look at these uh, breathtaking scenes where God's word comes to life. And so we believe it'll be a benefit to your faith. And so we want to invite you to come along with us. Romans chapter six this morning. I don't know about you, but I love the fact that in our culture and in really cultures around the world, we celebrate new beginnings. Whenever something begins, we usually inaugurate it with something special. So for example, yesterday I was at a wedding and what an awesome representation of a beautiful moment. Right There's a young lady and a young man who are giving their lives to each other, and we watch right before our eyes a miracle take place as this single man and this single woman become husband and wife. And it was with great pomps and great circumstance that this couple comes together in marriage. A celebration. A celebration of a new beginning for that couple. Or how about when you have a baby? Right when you have a baby, usually somewhere along the line, somebody's going to get you your baby a gift, and sometimes maybe they'll throw you a shower, and it never fails here in Ohio that when there's baby showers, there's usually an outfit with the Ohio State Buckeye symbol on it. It's like we brand our children from the very beginning. And there's celebration, isn't there? There's, there's excitement that the baby is going to come. There's excitement that this baby is going to bring a new beginning in our lives. Or how about getting back to school? We're in the season of, of back to school season. And I don't know if you've been in Walmart recently. I walked in there the other day, and I usually try to stay away from there until my wife gives me, hey, why don't you pick this up on your way home? So I stopped in Walmart, and it was like a madhouse in the back to school supplies. I mean, people were fighting over pencils and crayons and, and folders and, you know, all these things, right? We got to have it. It's a new beginning. The school year is starting. Or, or how about... Uh, New Year's, right? We have New Year's, and, and New Year's is usually fireworks, and you stay up till midnight, and you might even kiss that significant other, other at the stroke of midnight, and you celebrate the new beginning of a fresh year. We see all through history the idea that we celebrate new beginnings. This happens around the world, by the way. Around the world, we see this. I, I remember going to Papua New Guinea in 2003, and there they had a, a rite of passage, a new beginning for young boys who were becoming men. If you are a young boy in this specific tribe, you were sent out in a, with a blindfold on into the middle of the jungle, and your job was to survive and make your way back to your village. And if you made, you made your way back to the village, they would declare you a man. If you didn't make it back, well, you never entered manhood. Or, or how about a, tri a tribe along the Amazon River? It's a tribe called the Sateri Maui tribe. And there, they actually take young boys, and if they, when they're ready to become men, they put kind of what's, what's like oven mittens on their hands, and they fill it with what's called bullet ants. Now, we don't have bullet ants in the U.S., but what bullet ants are, bullet ant sting is 20 times the sting of a wasp. 
So they fill a mitt with bullet ants, and they, they tell the boys they have to dance for 10 minutes without passing out while they're being stung on their hand. And if they don't pass out, they become men. Or I think of the Vanuatu tribe. They climb a, a, a mountain about 98 feet in the, in, the, in the air, and they tie their ankles to vines, and they bungee off of it. But the key is, if they really want to become an adult, a rite of passage, when they come down, they have to, to measure the vines perfectly so that they hit their head on the ground. And if they survive, they're then an adult. Can you imagine us doing that in our culture? Come here, son. Put the vines on your feet. Make sure you hit your head, but don't kill yourself. And they jump off. This is, we see around the world the celebration of new beginnings in very odd ways, nonetheless, but we celebrate new beginnings. Now think about this for a moment. We find the new beginning of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Is there any better new beginning? Where God opens our eyes, where he unveils our hearts, and he shows us that we're dead in sin but offers us eternal life in himself. He takes the scales off. He takes us out of the depth of the despair, out of sin, and brings us into new life because he died and rose again. He makes us a new creation. Old things are passed away. All of a sudden he begins to redefine us. Is there any greater new journey than that? This new journey, this new beginning of faith in Christ. And the question is, how do we inaugurate that? How do we demonstrate that? What step do we take to reveal that we belong to a new family? That we now are a child of the king? How do we demonstrate that step? Well, the answer is baptism. I mean, the New Testament, three chapters in, we find baptism as part of the journey even with Jesus. Now, I just want to pause here. We know that as a church, right? We talk about baptism. You've heard of baptism before. But when you really think about it in our culture, baptism is a bit weird. Like that we take people and we dip them in water and, and, and we celebrate their faith in Christ. Well, but in, what's interesting for you and I, we, we don't really have that built into our culture, but in the, in the early church and going back even to the Old Testament, baptism was a part of a rite of passage for almost everybody of every religion. Baptism became a part. In fact, I want to look just for a moment at the Jews. We go back to the Jews. Baptism was a part of becoming a Jew. So if you weren't born a Jew, you could become a Jew. So we go back to the Old Testament, and we find the Jewish people. The Jewish people were God's people. God delivered them out of Egypt. He created a nation for himself as a demonstration of his redemptive purposes. And we find this, these people being called to a few things. And so if you wanted to join them, there were three steps you had to take to become a Jew. Now, before we go any further, I want to make sure we have clarity. A lot of people talk about, well, I want to become a Jew. You can't really become a Jew. A Jew is a race. You become a Judaizer. Judaism is the religion of the Jews. And so when someone says, I want to become a Jew, or I became a Jew, what they're actually saying is, I joined the religion of the Jews, which is very different than it was in the Old Testament. But if you wanted to join the Jewish people in the Old Testament as the people of God, there were three steps. The first step was you had to sacrifice. And so you would go to a priest in the tabernacle or later on in the temple, and you would, you would get a turtle dove or you would get a small lamb or a small goat, and you would sacrifice. Kind of gruesome when you think about it, but this was the first step. It was a, a way to honor God with a burnt offering. The second step was circumcision. Now, I'm not going to give you great detail about what circumcision is. 
If you don't know, you can look that up later on. But circumcision, the second step was you had to be circumcised. Now, this was normal. If you were born a Jew, you were circumcised on the eighth day. By the tenth day, you forgot it happened. But can you imagine being a 20 or 30-year-old young man deciding to join the Jews, Judaism, you had to be circumcised. You can imagine that men were reluctant to join the Jewish people. There wasn't a lineup. There wasn't this moment where everybody was like, hey, I want to impulse buy Judaism. They didn't go through the line at Lowe's and see a magazine that said, hey, join us with an extreme Jewish makeover. Men didn't line up for this. They were reluctant to do so, but that was part of the journey. Part of that was a memorial. By the way, the reason God used circumcision was it was a reminder to the people that if they did not follow God and his covenant, they would be cut off. That's the reason circumcision was a part of the plan. And then once you healed from circumcision, the third step was baptism. There's baptism. You would go to a pool, and by the way, in the Greco-Roman world of the first century, there were over 170 baptismal pools throughout the Roman Empire. During the time of Caesar Augustus, at the beginning of the, of the New Testament, we find 170 pools. Why? Because whatever religion you wanted to associate with, you would go and be baptized with. And so if you wanted to be associated with the Roman gods like Apollo or Zeus or Aphrodite, the false gods, you would go get baptized in their name. And so we find God saying, if you want to follow my name, you'd be baptized. Baptism became a picture of an association with him, your identity that was found in him. Baptism became a picture of the Old Testament promises of God, that he had delivered the people out of water, out of the Red Sea, out of the Jordan River. Baptism literally means to dip. In fact, the Greek word is baptizo. And whenever you find a word that continues its same name, it's not translated anything differently, it's usually pretty important. Baptism is the same word almost in every language. Baptizo, and it means to dip, to immerse, or to wash. It was used for a ship that was sinking. It would be dipped in the water. It was used for a, a, a clothing, a piece of clothing that you would dip in dye in order to make, make a garment. It was the idea of being immersed, being dipped, being put in the water. So for a Jew, over the process of becoming a Jew, they would relinquish their old identity, they would let go of who they were, their old nationality, and now they took on a new identity. This was not just an add-on, this was a total transformation of who they are and who they were. So baptism became known as this. Baptism is, it is a public declaration of a new association. Baptism became a public declaration of a new association. Whether you followed God or not, you probably were baptized in that day in something. We come to the New Testament and God continues this pattern, this pattern of baptism. Jesus comes on the scene in Matthew chapter three and what is the first thing he does? After coming forward in ministry, he becomes about 30 years old. What is the first thing he does? He goes to the river to be baptized by his cousin, Matthew 3.13. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, but you come to me. But Jesus answered him, said, let it, not be, let it be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What is Jesus saying? I've got to show myself righteous here. This is a righteous step that I'm supposed to do. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. By the way, notice like a dove. It wasn't a dove. Those pictures that show a dove flying down, that's not actually what it was. It looked like a dove to the people. 
And it came rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Notice Jesus is connecting himself to the association of the Father. Jesus is coming to publicly declare in this moment that he had a new association that really was an old association that they didn't realize was his association, which was that he was God himself. And so he begins the ministry of showing himself to be God, that he was a part of the Trinity, the Spirit, the Father, and himself, the Son. He was demonstrating an association. Jesus begins his ministry with baptism. At the end of his ministry, right, Jesus comes, he dies on the cross for our sins. Three days later, he rises again. And then before he ascends into heaven, what does he say to his disciples? Well, in Matthew 28, he ends his ministry on earth with this statement. It says, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Doing what? baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He says, go and make disciples and make sure they follow their new association. They identify with me. We then get to the book of Acts. We're journeying through history here quickly. We get to the book of Acts. Jesus now ascends into heaven. The disciples are waiting the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They begin to preach the gospel. Peter is preaching. And we find in Acts chapter 2, verse 40, this pattern. It says, and with many other words, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word did what? They were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Do you see the pattern? In the Old Testament, it was, if you want to become a part of the people of God, sacrifice, circumcision, baptism. We come to the New Testament, Jesus is baptized, Jesus proclaims baptism, and then the early church begins to baptize after somebody believes. Now, I want to pause here for a moment. I don't know about you, but I am thankful God did not choose circumcision. Can you imagine on August 18th, hey everybody, we're going to have an outdoor circumcision, Food trucks, moon bounces, we're going to have a blast. We'll also have Ohio Health here with us, Avita Hospital as well, and uh, I don't know about you, but we wouldn't get anybody to show up. Actually, some of you would because you're that curious. How crazy would that be? But God chooses one symbol, the easiest of all symbols, a, symbols, uh, a symbol of declaration, a symbol of identity to publicly declare a new association in him. In fact, when you read the New Testament, there is not a category of a Christian who has not been baptized. Christians got baptized. It was the step of obedience to publicly declare their new identity. There is no category of a Christian who wasn't baptized. Why? Because it was such an important part of the journey. It was such an important part of their declaration that they had a new association. The question is why? Why are we even talking about baptism? Why on August 18th are we going to baptize? Why is baptism important in our journey of faith? I want to show you why. The answer is found in, in Romans chapter 6. In Romans 6, Paul gives us insight into the importance of baptism. Why baptism is a part of our journey. Now, as we read this, this is not explicitly about baptism. 
but it certainly paints baptism as a picture of the point Paul is trying to make. I want to go back to Romans chapter 5. I want to set up what we're going to, about to see. For, for five chapters, Paul is making an argument that the gospel changes lives. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We get to chapter 5, and in chapter 5 he says, there is, a, there is an old Adam, that old Adam, the first Adam, and he brought death. There's a new Adam, Jesus Christ, and he brings life. So he says, attach your life to the new Adam, to Jesus. Now watch what he says, verse 20, chapter five. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. So the question is, why did God give the law? The law proves we need Jesus. The law proves that we sin. The law is a mirror that reveals our true hearts, that we reject God. So the law increases the trespass. But where sin increase, grace abounded all the more. I love this word, by the way, abounded. The word in Greek is literally superabounded. Where there's sin, God's grace superabounds it. Where there's sin, God grace, God's grace is always greater. Where there's strife, God's grace is always greater. Where there's difficulty, God's grace is always greater. Grace superabounds the difficulties, the failures of our lives. So that, verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So sin brings death, but grace brings righteousness and ultimately life in Jesus Christ. So Paul declares grace superabounds our sin. But he knows us well because what is our reaction? Our reaction would be to say, What well, if grace always superabounds sin? Why not just keep sinning? Why don't I just go to live my life? I've got grace. Just do whatever I want. So Paul goes to chapter six. Take a look at what he says. So what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Let it not be, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Paul uses the analogy of baptism to demonstrate our new identity in Jesus Christ, our new association. In fact, I want you to notice what he says in verse 3. Do you not know? See, baptism is a central doctrine of our faith. It is a central belief. It is something that we know that baptism portrays that indicates something about our faith. I want to bring up four reasons why baptism is so important. What, is, what does baptism do? I want to give you four reasons rather quickly. Number one, baptism serves as a reflection of our new identity in Christ. Baptism serves as a reflection of our new identity in Christ. You look around the room and all of us are unique. All of us have markers of our identity. So we could check our fingerprint. It's a marker of our identity. No one has a fingerprint like ours. Our facial expressions. We may look alike, but there's vast differences in the way that we look. If you're related, you may look similar. By the way, you know the old joke, as you get older, if you're a couple, as you get older, you start to look more like each other. 
It's kind of true, isn't it? You start to look at each other, and it's kind of, you start to look like each other. I don't know why that happens, but it's somewhat true. Kids look like you. We also say different things, don't we? Like, I remember when we first moved to Ohio, and someone said, I want to go get some pop. And I thought it was my grandfather, who had, it was deceased. So you go get my grandfather pop? I mean, my, my grandfather was named Pop. And so I started to hear people say pop, and I wondered, what does that even mean? I realized pop is soda. Or Coke, because generic Coke is everything, right? Some places say pop, some say soda, some say, say Coke. H- how about the way we say y'all, right? You're from Kentucky or West Virginia or you're from the South. You say y'all, how y'all doing? If you're in the Northeast, you say use. How's you doing? Some say you all, right? There's a different way of saying these things. Is it tennis, shoes? Or is it sneakers? Or the one that keeps our family on edge at all times, is it caramel or is it caramel? <laughs> and depending on where you're from, is how you say it. We have these identifying markers. So here, here's the picture. Paul says in Romans 6, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. What is he saying? He's saying that baptism is a reflection of our identity in Jesus Christ. In what way? Well, when we go down in the water, we are proclaiming that just as we were going down in the water, we were drowning in our sin. That every one of us was, be, was being overwhelmed in sin. We were drowning in our sin. We could not be rescued from it. And it also is portraying that Jesus came and he drowned in our sin as well. That Jesus came and he went under the watery grave of sin. And he was put into a grave. He died on the cross, put into a grave. And he died on behalf of our sin. This is the picture. This is the reflection. And then when we come out of the water, what happens? It is a glimpse that just as Jesus rose from the grave three days later, you and I now walk in newness of life. We're no longer drowning in sin. We've been given new life in his blood through, his, through faith in him, through his work in our lives. And all of a sudden, we now have a new identity. I am no longer who I was. I am who God has made me to be today in him. And baptism is a picture of that work. Baptism is a reflection of this new identity. I was drowning But God has brought me out of the watery grave. I was submerged in sin. I now walk in life and freedom. Number two, baptism focuses us on the future hope of glory. Baptism focuses us on the future hope of glory. Take a look at verse five. It says, for we have been united with him in a death like his, then we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Notice how it talks about this in the future. Certainly, we were part of the resurrection in the past. God made us alive. But there's also a future hope of a resurrection one day. I don't know if you know this or not, but these bodies one day will die, but these bodies one day will actually be resurrected, and they will be made new, even our bodies. What I love about our salvation, so many people, when they think of salvation, they always think of it kind of divided, right? That that when I come to know Christ, my soul is saved, and my body is bad. But do you know the scripture reveals that when we come to know Christ, there's also a future promise that our bodies, physically, will be made new. That will actually be resurrected, that they'll actually become new. There's this image that when we're saved in Christ, we are totally, entirely saved. Yes, these bodies will die, but one day they will be made new, they will be 
they will be glorified like Jesus was after his resurrection. And one day, our bodies will resurrect. This is seen all throughout the scripture, specifically as we read in the New Testament. There's a promise of a future resurrection. You know why I love that? I, I love that because when we get to the kingdom, it's not just going to be living as a spirit or a soul. It's going to be living physically. It will be more physical than even here, I would say. The realization of who Christ is. There is a future hope of resurrection. These bodies that are frail and dying and sick and struggling and limping and surgeries, done. The body will be made new. Now, there's a lot of questions with that. How old will we be? Some believe we'll be 33 like Jesus. I'm banking on 18, maybe 21 at the height of my physique. I'm hoping. I don't know. All I know is there'll be no pain. There'll be no sorrow, there'll be no sickness, there'll be no death, there'll be no strife, right? These bodies will be new. And so baptism is a memorial and a reflection on the future resurrection that's going to come. Now, I don't know about you, but I look around the world and I think about what happened this past weekend and I start to think, Lord, so come Lord Jesus. Just come back, like split the sky, do it now. If you ever face a difficult situation, you ever prayed that? Like you're facing a difficult situation you just don't even want to go through and you're like, Lord, it would be awesome right now if you split the sky and call the trumpet and we all go up, right? The Bible talks about this. You know what I love about Christ? And this is what I love about the scripture. And I talk about this with people because I think it's so important. You know why God doesn't return yet? See, God realizes if he returns now, he undoes, he undoes all of us. Right? Once he comes, there's no more hope. Once he comes, it's over. Right? The kingdom is ushered in. It's over. There, there's, there's not any really hope for people that don't know him. It's, it's, it's done. So what does God do? God doesn't come back yet. Why? God doesn't return because he still has a heart for people to come to know him. In fact, it should be a joyous thing that God doesn't return yet. Why? Because every moment he waits is another moment another soul can come to him. Another person can give them their lives. Another person can be transformed. In fact, I've changed my prayers from Lord Jesus come to Lord Jesus wait. We've got more to do. Lord, there's more people to be impacted through the ministry of Crossroads. So just wait a little longer. Give us a little more time, God. Don't come back yet. Baptism reminds us of a future hope that we hold to while we endure present realities. That's baptism. N number three, baptism reminds us that we have freedom from sin. Notice the argument. He says, grace superabounds sin. And so he says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Let it not be. And then he goes on to verse 7. For one who has died to sin has been set free from sin. What is the image? The gospel of grace does not empower sin. The gospel of grace executes sin. Grace gives believers power to overcome the dominion of sin. So that sin doesn't have to reign in us anymore. Grace doesn't just give us forgiveness. Grace actually transfers us to the lordship of Christ so that now I don't have to give in to sin any longer. I don't have to give in to that struggle. Baptism reminds us that I'm free. I don't have to give in to sin. I don't have to give in to the struggle. In fact, one of my favorite verses is found in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says this. I quote it to myself all the time. It says, no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with temptation, he will always provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. He says there is temptation. That temptation is not uncommon for any man. 
In fact, the word temptation here isn't just sinful temptation. It's also temptation to in trials, temptation to give up. There could be financial loss or relational crisis or situations we're not sure what's going to happen. And, and it could be sickness or, or strife in our family. And we wonder, God, what are you going to do in the midst of this? And there can be a moment where you feel like giving up. You know what that verse tells us? Whatever that temptation is, whether it's sinful or whether it's suffering, whatever that temptation is, what happens? It says it's not uncommon for everybody. That means there's been somebody before us that has faced this. We're not going through anything that's unique. Right now in our lives, we're not going through anything that's unique in history. It's unique to us, but it's not unique to God. It's not unique to humanity. And why I love that is because common problems equal common solutions. So what is the common solution? God is faithful. God is faithful in always providing a way of escape. God is faithful in giving us a fork in the road that we can choose to not go down the sinful path, to not give up in difficulty. Right? If you're in a house and you're in the second story and the house is burning, what are you going to do? You're going to take the window and you're going to jump off the porch onto the ground even if it costs you breaking your leg. Why? Because there's a way of escape. If you're being chased by a bear and you find a ranger station, what are you going to do? You're going to run into the ranger station. You're going to take the way of escape. If you're on a cruise, hopefully not our crossroads cruise in October, but you're on a cruise and the ship is going down, what are you going to do? You're jumping on the lifeboat. You're not hesitating. Why? Because you take the way of escape. God says, listen, I am faithful, and every time there's a sinful temptation, every time there's a temptation and difficulty to throw in the towel and give up, he says, there is a way of escape. There's always a way of escape. It's not always easy. It's not always obvious. But there's always a way that God provides to escape. Now, what does that have to do with baptism? I believe when we get baptized, it's actually God saying, if you're not willing to get in water and to go under the water, by the way, think about it for a moment. Isn't baptism, isn't water the easiest thing in the world? I mean, we were born and we we're given a bath, first thing. Now today we have showers and stuff like that. Around the world, many people still bathe and some people like baths and some not. But, but getting in a tub of water is pretty easy. Like going in the water, coming out of the water, no big deal, it's the easiest thing. Here's what God is saying. If I'm not willing to go down in the water to be baptized as a declaration of my new association, then am I ever willing to endure the temptation that's gonna to come tomorrow? Am I ever willing to stand against the sin that's gonna creep up in my life next week? Am I gonna be able to endure that moment where I feel like throwing the towel? If I'm not willing to get in the water, then I'm certainly not gonna endure the difficult seasons of life. If I can't do the easiest thing of just taking a bath, not literally with soap and stuff, but baptism, then am I willing to do the difficult things that God is going to ask me if I can't do the easy thing? And that's the image here, right? Baptism is a declaration that there's freedom from sin. I don't have to give in to sin. It reminds me of victory. And lastly, number four, baptism matters because it declares the gospel to the world. Can I tell you, when you're baptized, you actually preach your first sermon. You preach your first sermon. You declare to the world that you belong to Christ, that you belong to God. It proclaims that you now have a new association. It unifies people around that calling. It's beautiful for the church because it unifies us around the mission of Christ. See, baptism lays claim. It's a statement of ownership to any who witness it to say, 
That person belongs to God. That person belongs to Christ. That person has a sign that's an irrevocable seal on their lives that they belong to the king. That they are no longer slaves of sin and enemies with God, but no, instead, they are friends and family of God. They are sons and daughters of God. They have a new association in Christ. See, baptism is a witness to the world. And can I tell you, on August 18th, I love the fact that we're having it here at Park Avenue. I love it. I love it. You know why? Because on that Sunday afternoon, there are going to be people that are driving down this road, as they do all the time. And they're going to look up on this property, and they're going to go, I wonder what's happening there at Crossroads. It's not church time. They have church in the morning. What's going on there? It's Sunday afternoon at 5 o'clock. Why? Looks like they're having a party. And there's going to be some people drive by, and they're going to think it's Chick-fil-A up here. And they're going to forget it's Sunday. And they're going to drive up. They're going to wonder what's happening. Is it, is, it, is it a carnival? Is it a party? What's going on? And they're going to drive up the road. And what they're going to notice is people being baptized. It's going to be a public declaration of a new association. It's going to be a declaration of the world that these people who have faith in Christ are saying they're willing to go wherever God leads them to go. They're willing to do whatever God leads them to do. They realize there's victory over sin. They no longer belong to themselves. They belong to God. They have a new association. Their identity is set. Now they have a purpose behind their life. And they're going to see that, and it's going to be a testament to everybody who sees of the good news of the gospel that, that Jesus saves, that Jesus takes us from darkness and brings us into his marvelous light. I, I remember when I, when I pastored in Maryland, we were having a baptism service, and we would have our baptism service at a river. We were right next to the Potomac River in Maryland, and uh, we went down to the river, and I had a little boy right before we started baptism. He came up to me, and he said, Pastor Dave, Pastor Dave, when can I be advertised? And I thought, well, kid is baptized. And then I stopped and I thought, wait a minute. This kid is a genius. That's what baptism is. Baptism is an advertisement that says, I've got the seal of the Father on me. Baptism is an advertisement that says, I've been rescued from sin and death. My identity is now Jesus Baptism is an advertisement that says, I don't have to give in to sin. I don't have to quit when the going gets tough. I can endure. See, baptism is an advertisement that says I have a new association and I want to publicly declare it. I want to encourage you here. If you do not know Christ, may today be the day you take the step of faith to say, I, I need to know Christ. I want to give my life to him. Listen, he came to earth, he died on a cross for you, he rose again for you, and he offered you eternal life absolutely free. You don't have to hope so, maybe so, think so, you don't have to earn it, it's yours, it's, it's a gift to you. All you have to do is receive it by faith. That's it. And then what he does is does, does a transformation in your life, and if you're here and you know Christ, have you taken the easy step of baptism? You know, there are so many around the world, they just walk away Oh, yeah, I believed in Christ one day, years ago. Baptism is the declaration. A declaration of a new associate, an easy step to say that I belong. I belong to Christ. I have a purpose. And I belong to a body, a body that loves me, a body that wants to see the best in my life for Christ. I want us to ponder baptism right outside these doors. If you have not been baptized, I'd love for you to talk to somebody. Right outside these doors is a table. Next Steps is ready to pray for you to talk to you. Take a look at this video that reminds us of the beauty of baptism here at Crossroads.